say something nice to the person next to you or about them. Second, we can add that. O Lord God, Heavenly Father, who through your Son has revealed to us that heaven and earth will someday pass away. We beg you, keep us steadfast in your word and in true faith. Graciously guard us from all sin and preserve us amidst the temptations of this world so that our hearts not be overcharged with the cares of this life, but at all times, in watchfulness and prayer, we await the return of your Son and joyfully cherish the expectation of eternal salvation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Hey, uh, good to see you. It's an interesting time in the church. I think this was the, probably the busiest week of the year I've had, more busy than... Easter or Christmas. It's amazing everything happens sort of at once. And that's good because that means people are using the church, but it's, uh, you know, it's a remarkable time. So hang in there, everybody. It's going to be okay. Uh, I always wonder you know, what I should be saying to you. And my greatest nervousness is that I would bore you. I think that's the chief crime of anybody who teaches or lectures is to, is to bore folks. And so you know, my you know, bias is always to step on the gas. You're bright folks, you're accomplished, you know stuff, you come to church, let's go. And so, you know, I think to myself, well, I, I, say, I said something to you eight years ago, I'm sure you possibly remember that, and you'll be ready to apply it this afternoon at 1.13 p.m. But then I think to myself, occasionally somebody will say to me something I've said a hundred times, I never thought about that before, I never heard that before, and then I think to myself, huh. And then, so hold that, experience and then I have another experience for, for years almost from the first year I got here I've been lecturing a time or two at Wheaton College one time on the sacraments and one time on the spiritual formation of children and I've been doing that for you know 20 years and I'm struck every time I get to go do that how important it is for people to develop a theological vocabulary to have crisp definitions to be able to say things in five words or less to see how the pieces fit together. And then I realize when I work with younger folks and students, and then also with newer Christians, what a challenge it is, and frankly, uh, a skill that's only developed over time with maturity to be able to put the pieces together and have your life actually work. So then you can see how I'm torn between these two things, where I said it once eight years ago, and I'm sure you remember it. And then the other side is, um, you know, you might have been on vacation that week, and that was integral to where we're going, uh, and yet I don't want to insult you because you've heard it before. And so that brings us then to today. So I don't know if this will take four minutes or two weeks, uh, because, you know, I have to try to, try to feel the room as we go. <clears throat> but... The art of theology, and I think I probably never once, I'm always kind of struck by young scholars who call themselves theologians. I don't think I've ever referred to myself in that way. And it also is, um, it's a bit of a thing even to call yourself a pastor. So, um, it's, um, I mean, I've only called myself pastor and that's your fault because you sent me a FedEx about 25 years ago. And, you know, real calls come by FedEx, the Holy Spirit has an account. So, uh, then that comes, you know, to today and kind of my last swing at things and how are we going to move through and also the season. Uh, 
And so the title today, you know, I'll be home for Christmas, of course, and then the uh-oh that follows. Now, I've talked to you about this a bit in the past, but this was prompted because I was invited to another church to give uh, an evening on parenting of adult children. Now, let's play You Be Me, my favorite game. So if you got an invitation to give a little chat about parenting adult children, you would think, A, my children are fabulous, rich, drive Ferraris, and they bought me a Lamborghini for Christmas, and we drove them all together to church where we didn't just tithe 10%, we tithe 40% because we're loaded and the church needs the money. This is great. Merry Christmas. That'd be one possibility. <laughs> and the other possibility would be less than that. Right? The, the kind of um, stress and uh, disappointment and anger and um, sense of failure and depression and, and, and. And it just doesn't have to be about your children, right? So I want to, if you don't have children, this is still for you because you can apply this to your parents or to your no good brother or brother-in-law, uh, you know, or, you know, the guy next door or something. So in one sense, of course, this is a how to get through the holidays primer. But in another sense, it is also about how to be part of a family. And then it's also about how to be the church. And it's also the recognition of everything doesn't always go our way. And, you know, if you punch the devil in the nose, he punches back. And, you know, this beautiful question that came, you know, last week from a little girl who said, why do we have incense? And, you know, the classic answer is Jesus likes it and the devil hates it. So we do the things that Jesus likes. And you should think when you see the incense going up, the demons flee because they can't stand beauty. They can't stand the adoration of Jesus. They can't stand that your prayers are ascending to heaven. They can't stand, you know, a holy place. And so, you know, to argue against incense, you're kind of like, you don't have to have incense, but you lose all of that. It's like if you're a, if you're a plumber and you don't have a pipe wrench. Sure, a hammer and a screwdriver might work over time, but, you know, it's not best. And so you start to think about all these pieces in your own life and how they fit together. And over the years, you know, what I hope has happened is that you've developed your own vocabulary and you can actually take the pieces and put them together and um, kind of find your own answers. And believe me, the world gives you plenty of chances to find your own answers. So this is what's going to happen, I suspect. Everything we do, you're going to say, I saw that already, to which I will say, I'm glad you remember what I said eight years ago. But the trick here is to always be able to rearrange these pieces over against any challenge that you fit in your own life. Because raising your kids is ultimately your fourth commandment responsibility. Of course, we, you know, help and we're here to help you and help your kids. But, um, you know, dropping your kids off for Sunday school and going out to Donut Land in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, is not exactly what the scriptures had in mind when they said, you know, honor your father and mother, right? So you actually are trying to develop this way of doing things. And if you develop a way of doing things, you will suffer. I just want to be completely clear about that. You know, screw tape letters, I've told you this before, but it's screw tape letters where, you know, um, the, the lead devil says to his apprentice demon, 
Uh, the best way to damn a man is to leave him alone. He wakes up in hell one day and he wonders what happened. Right? And so um, this is all Paul's notion of warfare and arm yourself with the word of the Spirit. It's Jesus telling you to go to the Holy Supper over and over and over and over again. It's Paul saying rejoice in your baptism where you were, where you were um, resurrected from the dead. And if you come to church, if you go to the Eucharist, if you smell the incest, if you ring the bells, if you hear that glorious choir sing to us, um, you should presume about by the time you turn the key in your car, I mean, if your car doesn't explode like in a De Niro movie, you know, I just call it a plus, right? Go down the alley and pick yourself out a dress. Good fellas, go ahead, keep going. Come on, none of you? <laughs> go ahead, it'll be all right. Go. If that doesn't happen to you, you should just say, well, uh, you know, okay. And, uh, but you should expect, you know, that to be coming for you. But, of course, the other side, and this is the story of Christmas to Easter, is that um, suffer it all, and at the end of it there will be a resurrection, and that resurrection is for you. So, you know, all of that is the presupposition to what I want to do. You may say, I've seen this all before, my question to you would be, can you execute this? Because, of course, you know, that's the sermon this morning. Advent is about the execution. Prepare the way of the Lord. Straighten out his ways. Make a world where, you know, the lion and the lamb can have a sleepover and little children can pet cobras and it's all going to be okay. Right? That's the Old Testament text for today. So, um, where am I? I don't know. I'm at least through number one, okay? And then, um, you know, number two, this invitation. And then number three, I think I might have hit that as well, right? So uh, you're going to have your chance to put this all into practice. Um, I just want to say something in general about the, uh, about the church. Uh, there's, even among Lutherans, there's um, a growing rub between people who think that a pastor's job is to straighten people out and to take a very hard edge, which to me sounds suspiciously like the Pharisees. Um, if you could only be like us, wouldn't life be grand? And then there is, I think, the other side, which is that your pastor is meant to be empathetic and yet firm, right? Loving and yet not so open-minded that his brains fall out. Uh, because we're all in the same boat and we, live not, we, we only live by grace. And uh, when we can't understand the suffering that other people are going through, you know, we, it means that we're not engaged enough in life to be of much use to the baby Jesus. So, um, you know, I know that direct, straight line, you know, linear, Power. I admire it. It gets things done, makes people rich, solves problems, sorts ins and outs. And none of that is the way that Jesus worked. I don't even have to say the church to you. Let me just say, if you actually think that Jesus went to the cross, you actually understand that you live by dying and you, um, 
The eschaton comes by way of nails and spear. Now, of course, chaos doesn't serve anybody either, but I would suggest that at least our brand of Lutheranism is far from anything that could be recognized as chaos. But I would love to see um, a bit more empathy toward folks who are sinners and less distress that people aren't more perfect, you know, just like me. Uh, it makes me sad, but uh, it's going to be your church soon, so figure it out. Point four, when you think about these people, your relatives, your kids, your parents, you know, for many of you, it's your parents, right? I find one of the great blocks to people coming to the faith is that they have to reckon with their parents, including parents who have already died not in the faith. And people can hardly bear to say, I couldn't possibly believe in something that would put my parents, whom I loved, at risk. It's a very difficult situation. So, you know, you don't have to bundle this up just as is, you know, parenting adult children. This is parenting your parents or parenting your little brother who's, you know, lost his way or, 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 right? This is basic, basic stuff. It just, somebody else picked the target. I want to try to expand the target for you. You know, how do you, how do you think about them? So I just want you to pause for a moment. Bring your troublesome folks to mind. Don't say a word, but just bring your troublesome folks to mind. You ready? Just kind of bring them to mind. Your children, your parents, old friend who gave you up. You call him Judas now. Just think about those people who you'll be forced to be with, who perhaps have hurt, hurt you, but who everybody else thinks is wonderful. And why can't you be more friendly? Just bring them to mind. The people who have stolen your inheritance, like the young prodigal. Right? Just, just sort of bring them, line them up. Bring their faces into your imagination. Right? Those are the people we're talking about. And you're going to see them maybe on Christmas Eve, if everybody hasn't found this to be too painful and just avoid each other, which is no way to be family and not a win for Jesus either. Now, you say to yourself, um, what can be done for them? If this becomes too intense for you, I actually want you also to bring to mind another lineup of people whom you love. Right, best friends that you haven't talked to in a year, and if you picked up the phone today, it would be like no time has passed. Or people who really loved you, even when you didn't deserve it. Or people who forgave you, people who cared for you. Bring those people to mind as defense against the rest of this. And somewhere in the middle is gonna be the place where you're going to want to live, right? Not always with the people whom you love and are comfortable with, because that's too easy, you know? It sings to the choir. But think about those people who need to be recalled. That brilliant prayer on all saints, right? We pray for people in the lesser aspects of life. We pray for the wanderers. It's a beautiful phrase. 
for those who have wandered, that they be called home. That's a, that, that prayer and the vigil prayer, those prayers are the best prayers of the year. Because they recognize, you know, the Christmas Eve prayers as well. They recognize, you know, the trauma that many of you have faced as you've kind of moved through life. It recognizes the real difficulties of how original sin and our sins affect us. It shows us the damage that's been done and the, the damage that we've done. And it shows us a way out. And that, of course, is the most wonderful thing, to have a way out. And the wise men went home by another way. Right? This is why you're here. Now, the interesting thing for me would be is if you could put together things that I'm sure you've seen before and know, and yet put those things together in a way that you would be so comfortable with things that you've learned over the years that they actually come to mind, which is a way then to give care to people who aren't quite as far down the path as you are, right? Aren't um, quite so near to heaven. People have taken another way or maybe even turned around completely or just stopped in their pain. All of which comes to, you know, the fore in a time when families are gathered. And it's disappointed love that makes us feel so. To love greatly is to suffer deeply. And so when you've loved people, parents, friends, brothers, sisters, your children who have disappointed you so, um, the question is what to do. You can take the way of the Pharisees and you can be hard with them. That's easy and I can tell you already what the outcome will be. People will endure hardness until they don't endure it anymore. It may take time, it may be immediate, but people will endure hardness until they don't endure it anymore. They'll accept the law without the gospel until the situation becomes hopeless. Sometimes that happens immediately. You all know that you can say things that will end a relationship. There is another way, of course, to proceed, and that is the way of weakness, the way of love, the way of the cross, the way of the gospel, the way of patience, turning the other cheek, give and expect nothing in return, pray for your enemies, the way of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the way of Jesus, right? You all know this. You see, you all know this. You don't need me for this. You actually know this. You just need a little help putting the pieces together. This is nothing you haven't heard before. But the joy, and frankly, the deft application of these things that you know in just the right amounts, at just the right time, for just the right effect, even if you don't see it. See, that's the trick. St. Paul, we plant in water, God gives the growth. What did Jesus see as he looked down from the cross? A lot of nothing. John, his mother, a few of the women, and darkness. And yet you call this person savior. Why? Because the story doesn't end with your pain or his. And so, you know, as you grow older, 
and it doesn't need to be chronological, as you become mature in the faith, and you can have this even when you're young, you begin to see the possibility for outcomes. And when you can see the possibility for outcomes, then there's hope. And when there's hope, you needn't have a hard edge. In fact, when, there hope, when there's hope, it's the most faithful thing because you can stop trying to control the outcomes. You can stop trying to control the growth. You can plant and water and actually let God give the growth. So you can be as kind as possible to your parents, to your children, to your rotten brother. And go to sleep at night and let the outcomes belong to the Lord. So at some point, this becomes not just a matter of knowing the details. This becomes a matter of patience, of virtue, of love. This becomes a matter of letting the Holy Spirit have his way with you and being satisfied with the outcomes that the Lord delivers. And frankly, knowing that other, you're going to drop dead before a lot of the other people that you're worried about do, and being able even to trust the outcomes beyond the grave to them. Yes, and the only reason you can do that, or the only way you can faithfully do that, is if you live faithfully now. And every time you live faithfully, it is planting and watering, and every time you don't, it is uprooting and starving and destroying. Now here's the thing, you know all of that. Right? I haven't told you one thing that you do not know. So um, maybe in some sense this then is a skills course for a week or two about trying to figure out how when you see those people who will trouble you this Christmas or as you go on and parent you know, your adult children or your parents or whomever, right? What has to happen for you is that you react in the way that Jesus would react. And actually then if you want the explanation behind that, because it's so uncomfortable to do that, here it goes, okay? How's that, you still okay? All right, so, you know, point five. You've all seen this before, right? You know, get well soon. And if people could get well, they'd get well. Uh, right, so there's a range of ways, things that I can use this for, but you know, one of the thing is just the notion that we can heal ourselves. And we can't heal ourselves. You know, if we could get well soon, we could get well. And so this is why the whole world is sacramental, because everything starts with baptism. Now, pause, you're clever enough to know that at some point I'm gonna say everything starts with scripture, and then there'll be a later point where I'll say everything starts with the Eucharist. Same, same, same. Same Jesus, whether he touches your eardrums, touches your tongue, or touches your skin in holy baptism. But you should, um, see, this, this automatically brings questions like, the people who are around Christmas dinner with you, have they been baptized? People who have been baptized around your table, and for many Christian families, that's everybody, receive a particular kind of engagement. 
They're the people whom Jesus has taken the time to tattoo with his own name. There's a couple of times in Revelation where uh, you know, John's taking this tour through heaven and he looks around and says, who in the world are all these people? The 144,000, who are these dressed in white robes? I mean, you know, the angel goes on and says, these are they who've come out of the great tribulation, right? The great suffering of life. But just before that, it actually says, it's not just the white robes, which of course you get at your baptism. These are they who have the name. And then again, in the most, you know, beautiful expression of what heaven will be like, in the very last chapter of Revelation, there is this, it's all happened now. And the lamb is on his throne and the water flows out, baptism, baptism, the water flows out and it feeds 12 trees and their leaves grow and are wrapped around the saints as the medicine of life to heal all their ills. And then sort of offhandedly it says, and they wear the name of Jesus on their foreheads. So you should think when you come to Christmas dinner with, um, I mean, God bless you. If everybody's smiling and been to church and you know, saying, yay, Jesus, you should say, I've died and gone to heaven. This is just how it will be. But if that doesn't happen to be your reality, then you say to people, um, at least she's baptized. Or you pray that baptism would have its way with him, your father, or you know, your little sister who's a bum. You know, your cousins who, you know, your cousins. So, uh, you might think of these people as those whom Jesus chose to resurrect. You have it here under Romans 6.3, right? Don't you know everybody who got baptized, shared in Jesus' death, in his resurrection, in his glory, in his new life? When you look at another baptized person, your primary way of engagement is by way of their baptism. I, of course, am going to say to you when we get to the Eucharist, when you look at another person who's had the body and blood inside them, the primary way to engage them is the body and blood's inside them. When you look at these people, you treat them as if they're Jesus. It's notoriously difficult because they don't look, smell, dress, or act like Jesus did. It was unbelievably difficult. You often wonder if they're imposters, if there's anything left of that tattoo, right? If it's been undone. I talked to you a few weeks ago about the, you know, for Halloween, the Satanists, Satanists unbaptizing people for 10 bucks a piece. It was so beautiful that they charged because it's so upside down. Baptism is this free gift, right? So we don't charge for a baptism here. That's one of the first things we did after I came. Just, you never charge for a sacrament or because they're free. It was hilarious that, you know, the Satanists believe in you so much that for 10 bucks, they'll undo your baptism. You're kind of like, that is so sweet. At least you, at least you're honest about your lies. It's beautiful, right? So when you gaze across the table or you meet your kids at the airport or, you know, they sleep through church on Sunday, you should say, uh, as you bring them to mind, these are the ones who Jesus baptized. You'll need that later. 
And then, of course, you know, and I'm not doing every last sentence of this because you've had this before. You do, of course, then have this beautiful image of them being the temple of God. And so, you know, when a child is baptized, there'll be a child baptized today, first thing out of the box at the late service at 11 o'clock. This is what will happen. You will watch this happen. The pastor will put water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And at that moment, God will move into that child in a way that can't be described or portrayed in any other way than a death and resurrection. And the Holy Trinity will move into that child. The Heavenly Father who created that child will own that child again. And Jesus who died for that child will stake his cross in that child's heart. And the Holy Spirit will illumine that child with fire and with light burning away what is evil, casting bright light on all that's good. And to make the point, we'll anoint the child, give a light, and say, you belong to Jesus now. And so you remember, you know, offhandedly almost, Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says, hey, don't you remember you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? Now, your miscreant family, frankly, don't remember that. Or it's certainly not at the top of their food chain when they make decisions. And you may or may not be able to change that in your own life. However, the fact remains that the Lord regards them still as a baptized child. And you are meant to regard them then as a baptized child because faith agrees. If Jesus says, this is my child, you say, this is your child. If Jesus says, this is my temple, you say, this is your temple. Even if the temple itself is not saying that. And the history of Israel is rife with examples of where the temple was defiled. The only thing close to violence that Jesus ever shows is when he cleanses the temple and he's mad at the pastor's. But for normal people, like your family who's gone astray, Jesus has a very long runway. And so, you know, he's adopted you and all your relatives and your friends and people show up. He calls them beloved when he sees them. He welcomes them as if they are his own. And now, this is particularly for parents whose children have gone the wrong direction. And again, you've heard this before. I don't have that many new things to say. Jesus fishes with a barbed hook. And in the images, you know people who fish with an unbarbed hook, right? To make the fight more fair. Do you know this? There are people who fish without a barbed hook. And so you got to be a little more clever if you're going to fish without a barbed hook. Your success rate goes way down. Jesus fishes with a great big barb. Okay? It's very, very difficult to shake him. It can be done because grace by nature is resistible. You only need to look at the cross for that. Jesus came to his own and his own knew him not. If you're the king of the Jews, come down from the cross. And so they resisted him to the point that they defiled him and murdered him. The gospel is incarnately resistible. 
But if you're a parent, or you have a sib, or an idiot cousin, or a next door neighbor, oh, I thought you'd laugh. None of you have idiot cousins. <laughs> I know. I have a dark heart. I mean, you would think, you would think by now, but no, you know. You should see. I told you many times. I'm like Medusa, but all my snakes go inward, right? Yeah. So you know, it's nearly impossible. And you, you know, sometimes you just have to go to bed at night and say, "I've done the best I can do." But if you say that, you shouldn't be lying. You should have made sure that you've done the best that you can do. Which would involve getting your kid baptized and sending him to Sunday school and having to meet Pastor Nelson at Pastor Chats and bringing him along for dinner on Wednesday nights and not telling me that second grade soccer is more important than that because you know the U.S. men's team really needs help. And so there was a time when, you know, the Lord, you know, put his name to your child. And um, I want to try to console you with the last prayer in baptism. You listen today what will happen. These very earnest, faithful parents will bring their child to be baptized. And it will be spectacular. It will be miraculous. It will be a matter of death and life. And they will never love their child more than when they have them baptized have her, in this case, baptized. But the ultimate act of faith, then, is the prayer that finishes. You listen for it. And now that this has become your child, so you bring your child to Jesus, and then you give your child up. Later, when you pray for your child who's gone off the rails, or parents, or cousins, or brother, or sister, pray, whoever it happens to be, you might remind God gently in a non-sassy way <laughs> that this particular child belongs to him and he ought to do something about it. Now, here's the thing. Um, I want to encourage your courage and your weakness at the same time. God is good for what he done, and he's good for his promises. And yet, you know, you shouldn't act like you can push God around. On the other hand, when you try to push him around, it means that you have faith, and he's slightly amused by this, because, and even happy for you, that you can remember that he said, pray without ceasing, and don't worry, I'll always be there. So you might gently remind the Lord that there was a day when he baptized your child. You actually have a tricolor certificate out of the printer <laughs> with a signature. You can pull it out if you think it might help. And um, that will let you sleep at night because God will stay awake and look after your child. After all, you know, that child wears the name of God wherever that child goes. And um, God loves your child more than you do. Pause.
Um, I'm only at point number five, which suggests to me that we may have to come back to this next week. <laughs> but I at least want to start with you about one thing, and then I'm, I, you know, I want to talk to you about what I think are often common holiday reactions, which, you know, I'm uh, angry and I'm worried and I'm depressed. I would love for you to be, you know, happy and faithful and can't wait till the next one. And in that effect is your experience, rock on, okay? But, um, you know, I'm a realist, not an idealist, because you know, Satan is an idealist, and John Kleine told me I had to be. So, um, a realist, not an idealist. So I just at least will take the first one, which is, you know, I'm angry even on the way to the airport to pick my kids up. Or my brother, because he's, you know, interrupting the Michigan-Ohio State game. You people. <laughs> with your winning teams. The rest of us can't understand you. So I've given you this definition before. I'm at, uh, oh no, shoot. Yeah, I'm at six, okay. Um, this notion of you're angry and why you're angry. Maybe I'll just end with this and we'll come back to seven next week, but at least the anger part. And, you know, we spent, you know, weeks on this. This is, you know, I did this at Camp Arcadia one week. It was the most miserable week of my life. I mean, I'm being serious. I had, this was um, back in eight and nine, and, you know, the world was flying apart more, so maybe even than COVID. And um, I did this bit on, on anger and not being angry. I literally... I'm walking through the woods till midnight. People are confessing everything you can possibly imagine, up to and including murder, right? This is my week off at Arcadia. And, you know, I came home and I was wrecked because, you know, I had lectures in the morning, tried to have my family in the midday, and then I had people who were completely upside down until, you know, late into the night. I mean, I never forget that, that week. That was the kind of go, what the heck? And, um, but you know, part of it is, is just how sin works on it and how angry it makes us. And I, you know, I just want to, you know, I'll go on record with the scriptures that there is such a thing as right, righteous anger. You know, I'm fine with that. This is my personal observation. You're horrible at it, and so is every other Lutheran I ever met. <laughs> You're terrible at righteous anger. You think you're really good at it, which is one of the reasons you're self-righteous and not righteous. Because <laughs> here's the thing. Anger has the shelf life of manna. One day, and then it festers and is putrid to your nostrils and revolting to your taste. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry, but don't sin. I'll give you that one. If you can pull it off, it's yours. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And if you do, what happens? There's a breach in the wall. You've given the devil an opportunity. This is how exorcists often talk. In the course of an exorcism, they often speak about closing opportunities, right? Casting demons out and closing doors is a common way to talk about it. So here it is. 
So, uh, you know, this is, and the problem is, is we flinch because we know law and gospel and we know righteousness and sin and we want to do the right thing and we're convinced that righteousness is right. So we're going to express our righteousness long and hard because then we must be on the side of saints and angels, which is beautiful if you're perfect. But if you're not perfect, if you're not Jesus, the only way to be perfect is to be forgiven and forgiving. And so, you know, we did this. Anger is a natural reaction to being wounded. Your children have done horrible things to you. Or your father, or your mother, or your sibs, or the guy next door. They've done horrible things to you, and you react. The way if you punch me in the nose right now, my nose would bleed, my eyes would water, and I would probably curse you. Righteously, of course. And, uh, but this would be my normal reaction, right? I'm wounded. You've done me evil. But at some point in the next 24 hours, you have the choice to be a justice person or a mercy person. You can demand that everybody gets what's coming to them. And if everybody gets what's coming to them, everybody will be dead. Because you're as much a sinner as the next guy, and so am I. But if you are willing to be a mercy person, then Jesus will handle it in the way of the cross. And there'll be death and resurrection and possibility. Maybe for next Christmas or the one after. You should not, I just want to, I can't emphasize this strongly enough, that I went to pastor school, not to policeman school. And in what I'm saying, I'm trying to clearly distinguish the two kingdoms. I work in the gospelly kingdom. There are all sorts of wonderful people who are policemen and lawyers and prosecutors who keep order so that in, in, in a violent kingdom so that I can have the gospel kingdom. You should not confuse anything I'm saying with this public policy. That's another discussion. I'm exploring how the church works and what your family dinner will look like, right? Hopefully without flashing blue lights. I won't be the pastor on call. I'm the senior pastor. Somebody else can take the emergency line for Christmas. But you might begin, and we'll close with this, to explore your own anger. What makes you anger and why? How long your anger can last? And whether you want to pursue anger and justice to the nth degree as the normal hermeneutic of your life, the normal pattern of your life? Or is there another way that might be more hopeful? So for this next week, I just would ask you to have, you know, a good deal of self-reflection. Begin to envision the people, imagine the people who have hurt you deeply and who, frankly, you don't like very much, but you'll probably see. People who have disappointed you and betrayed you. And then also, because you'll need the consolation, begin to imagine the people who have stood by you, who have mercied you when you were horrible and gave you mercy when you deserve justice. 
There's another reason to have a crucifix on your wall if you can't think of any relatives who might fit into this category. And then you should begin to decide whether or not you want to live like Jesus hanging on the cross or you want to live like the Pharisees who taunted him and said, you know, come down if you're the son of God. Those are the two choices, mercy and justice. And of course, your, your work in the world and how you run your family and what you're going to do, yeah, it's complicated because these two worlds are intertwined and you have to pull them apart like a mass of spaghetti. Okay, this is life. And you're going to drop dead at about 80 or 85 or 90 and then it'll be over. Try to do some good between now and then. Because eternity is a really long time and it'd be nice to get it right. Okay, we'll come back here next time. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks. See you soon.